This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome along, everybody, to episode six of the Drive Nation podcast. I'm Dan Prosser. On the other end of the line, as always, is Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Everybody, Dan, how are you? Yeah, very well. How are you? I, I suspect, like me, Andrew, you've not been doing a great deal of work and you haven't been driving anything. I'm, I'm uh, soldiering on, so it's soldiering on. Uh, we are um, trying to do uh, lots of different things with Drive Nation, which uh, some of which will already become apparent, many more of which will become apparent. Uh, in the days and weeks to come. So uh, <clears throat> although there's not much um, of the traditional kind of work, uh, I'm not I'm not completely bored to death just yet. No, same. Okay, well, we've got this podcast to keep us busy. Um, and this week, we're talking about the art of road testing cars. Uh, oh, I think if you're being charitable, you'd say that recording a podcast on the subject of your own profession is reflective or introspective, but maybe it's just navel gazing. Um, a, f- a few or people profoundly self-indulgent. <laughs> one of those. Uh, a, f- a few people though have asked us to talk about road testing on this podcast, so hopefully they at least will enjoy listening. Um, I say the art of road testing cars because it's it can be a tricky thing to quantify, which is why it's worth talking about. Although the truth is, there's some objective science to it as well. Um, Andrew, I've been assessing and reviewing cars for almost 12 years now. How long have you been going? Uh, just the 20 years longer than you. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, 32. So I started, I started my working life as a road tester, a junior road test assistant on auto car, the day after Jaguar won Le Mans in 1988, uh, a race I was at. And so I turned up at Autocar's offices on the Monday morning, uh, not only ready for my new life, but also sporting the most colossal of hangovers. <laughs> and you've been pursuing that sort of level of professionalism ever since, have you? Relentlessly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so between us, we have, what's that, 44 years or so of road testing experience. So hopefully something worthwhile to say on the matter um, now, the the car magazine road test, as we know it today, was invented actually by Auto Car Magazine in 1928. Uh, you weren't quite at Auto Car then, Andrew. No, I, I was elsewhere at the time. Elsewhere at the time. <laughs> the t- so the term road test tends to refer to the very thorough assessment of an individual car, and it'll be published in a magazine over several pages with independent objective data as well as subjective assessment um, and often with a lap time recorded as well but for the sake of this podcast we're, we're talking more broadly about the discipline of assessing and reviewing a car or cars um, as a piece of consumer advice um, so Andrew you've mentioned already that you you first started reviewing cars for Autocar 32 years ago um, can you tell us who you learned to assess a car from and how you 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 sort of built up the skill set that it takes. Yeah, um, 
I turned up at Autocar thinking I already knew how to do it um, because I could drive. Um, and obviously, you, you always think you know it all. It was a much more drawn out, protracted process than I ever imagined it would be. I mean, really, it was um, with the you know the guys who were doing Autocar's road testing at the time. My boss was a bloke called um, Howard Lees. Um, and Howard was an amazing bloke. He very sadly died in a uh, in a stunt plane accident um, shortly after he left Autocar. Um, but you know, certainly the business of you know how to, uh, for instance, extract a set of performance figures from a car, um, which is not quite as straightforward as it might sound. How to operate all the equipment. Um, how to drive fast safely on public roads, um, because obviously when you're off group testing, as you all know just as well as me, um, you tend to get from one place to the other fairly rapidly. Um, and if you start pinging things off the scenery, you're not going to have a job for very long. Um, so really, it was, it was you know, there was no, uh, I mean, I was given a lot of help on the writing side, but that's probably another conversation. As far as the mechanics of road testing, aside, literally, it was just through experience. Uh, I had no mechanical knowledge. I still don't really. Um, you know, I could just about change a set of brake pads. That's about it. Um, so it was just a question of being out there with the autocar road test team and learning on the hoof, which then is now, I'm sure, remains the best way to do it. You touched on it there. I think later on, um, in, a, in a separate episode of the podcast, we'll talk about the business of car journalism sort of more broadly. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the fun that we've had over the years, maybe some of the funnier incidents, more memorable cars that we've tested We'll talk about the, the here and now of car journalism, the future of it as well. For this episode, though, we're, we really are focusing specifically on assessing a car. Um, it, now, it's, it seems to many people like it would be a dream job. Um, it was to me, which is why I worked so hard to get into this industry. Um, I also know how much fun I've had doing uh, this job over the years, road testing cars, um, I know also as well, though, how frustrating it can be at times. So, Andrew, do you think it's the dream job that people assume it is? Is it really all it's cracked up to be? I think, I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to, to, to sort of portray yourself as, you know, as someone who's actually had, you know, a much tougher time and it's nothing like as much fun as it's made out to be. And all that <laughs> but, the, but, but the truth is, it kind of is. Um, yeah. The only proviso I would add in is if you're the right sort of person, if you have the slightly strange skill set that you need to be able to do it. Um, and if you have, you know, you need a lot of energy, you need a lot of enthusiasm because, you know, it's, you know, as you know, it's uh, it's not a nine to five job. It's kind of the opposite of a nine to five job. Um, you know, you, you know, you, you quite often you're driving all day, but then writing all night. Um, and if you don't like that, um, if that doesn't really get you up and going in the morning, then it's it's the wrong thing to do. Also, you know, it's, it's not something that unless, you know, you end up doing it on telly is ever going to make you particularly rich. But no, it is, uh, let's be honest, it's a fabulous way of, um, of of earning a living, even if it's not a very uh, enormous one. It was interesting that, Angie, you touched on this idea that you'll be driving all day and then writing all evening. Um, I want to talk to you about how road testing cars has changed over the years um it's changed even in the time that i've been doing it when i started in the very end of 2007 it was um it was even even then car magazines didn't have websites the way that they do now certainly not very busy very active editorial websites that we're used to today um and so i i think i've got this perhaps slightly romanticized memory of the, it being a much slower pace back in 08, 09, um, less of a rush to publish your verdicts immediately. Um, but has it, has it always been the case, Andrew, that you've been up against deadline, that you've always had to turn around copy more quickly than you would like to? Or, could, or was there a time where you could, you know, take your time over it and, and sort of stew on it first? Uh, I mean, certainly working for a weekly like Autocar, there was, you know, there really wasn't much time for, there, there was rarely much time for, you know, a huge amount of uh, of reflection, um, you know, uh, because even if, you know, technically speaking, the story didn't have to be in the magazine by a, a certain date, you know, you always had people back in the office who couldn't work, they couldn't do their jobs. Um, unless they had your words and you know you weren't the only person writing for the magazine in any given week and they had to space things out so you know if you went and you drove a car um, you know the expectation was that you would provide the words pretty promptly thereafter that said um, it's nothing like it is today um, where you know with websites which are you know which have these insatiable appetites and you know and um, 
magazines and publishers have this um, this incredible imperative, which I'm not sure how important it actually is, but to be first, to be you know first in print, it's almost a pride thing that you know the autocar will always want to be first to any story. Uh, particularly if that means beating, for instance, Auto Express to it. And I get that, and it's always been that way. But yeah, you know, we are... And, and, but, but again, you know, I'm not necessarily complaining about that because to me it's part of being good at the job. You should be able to drive a car, um, come to a conclusion about that car while you're driving it, and fairly shortly thereafter be able to you know, summon a reasonably coherent set of thoughts, get them down um, on paper and, um, you know, and, and, get, and get them published. I think that's, you know, that's just part of the job these days. Mm, I completely agree. We'll come on to the skill set required to do it effectively and well in a moment. But let's go back to this idea of how it's changed over the years. Um, I mean, back in uh, when you first started, were you, were you being flown to all corners of Europe and to the middle east or to north america to drive yeah cars? yeah we were i mean i mean not if you're very junior um but actually the press trips back then were far more <laughs> lavish um than they are much more <laughs> lavish than they than they are now i mean i can remember there was i think Renault. i didn't go on it but there's there was one press trip to the yemen um there was you know you get press trips where manufacturers would reach the end of their budgetary year and realize they still had a huge amount of money in the pot and they'd just ring up some of their mates and they'd just fly them off around the world doing stuff on the slimmest of pretexts um just because they could and they knew that if they didn't spend all their budget for this year then their budget for next year would be smaller so you know all that stuff um used to go on i mean the very first launch i went on um was the alfa romeo 164 um, which involved, we drove the cars from England down to uh, the south of France. On the way down, we stayed in the Trianon Palace, which was um, the bit of um, the Palace of Versailles, I think, which Louis XIV built for um, his girlfriend. Um, and then we went, yeah, we went down. Uh, I got caught for speeding. Um, Alfa Romeo paid the speeding ticket, which no other manufacturer has ever done in the 32 years I've been doing it since. And then we were flown home on a private jet. <laughs> and I could just remember fiddling around trying to find my life jacket under my seat and finding a drinks cabinet instead. They clearly thought it was altogether more important that you could have a nice gin and tonic <laughs> on your way home than, you know, something to put around your neck if the plane should go down. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, and I kind of thought, I've arrived. This is it. This is, this is just how I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And, of course, uh, it doesn't quite work out like that. And as you know um, very well indeed, most of these press trips um are you know are fairly straightforward events you know you go to an airport you you, you get on you know a, a scheduled aircraft usually in the back of it and you go to you know a destination hopefully get in the cars because they're at the airport drive them go to a press conference have a bit of dinner write your story go home in the morning and do the next one yeah it's it, it's difficult to talk about this stuff without sounding horribly spoiled but that's because we are horribly spoiled there <laughs> that's why it's so difficult um but yeah even in the time i've been doing it so just over a decade that stuff has really changed i remember when i first started it was all chartered planes from private terminals frambra or the the harrods aviation terminal at um that's at luton that one isn't it um and uh yeah and uh, you know amazing hotels um now it's it's very different often often you're still staying in a nice hotel but you're yeah, as you suggested, you're on normal flights at the back of the plane. Um, and I think that's... Really, I don't have a, a problem with it. I mean, it's nice to fly in a in a smaller plane, perhaps on the BMW corporate jet, as I did one time. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's no big deal. You're actually there to the, do the, a job. The, the, only time it, the only time it is a big deal, um, uh, and I make this point and I hope there's some manufacturers listening, although actually almost all manufacturers are very good in this regard, uh, is that if you are flying um, long distance, so you're going to the States or the Far East or wherever, um, just from the pure business of you know, being able to make such trips, which generally take many, many days, pay their way, um you kind of it's 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 important that you are a that you arrive in a fit state to drive a car because that's just a simple safety matter but also you know i have to be able to work all the way there and all the way back again otherwise i just can't um you know um justify being away uh, and not earning for you know for that amount of time so um you know some space around you to be able to do that is 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 kind of important but i agree on, on all sort of local european jobs and you know, it's not such an issue. No, exactly. You're quite right to say that. What I was building up to was that there, there was another aspect of perhaps we're getting into car journalism a bit more than 
road testing here. We'll, we'll, we'll switch back in a moment, but there's another aspect of... Are you about to talk about the blag? <laughs> How did you know? I can see it sort of lumbering over the horizon. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so clearly your time uh, did coincide with the days of the blag. Just uh, about. Yes. So what was your blag policy? And what was the best blag you were ever offered? Well, okay, so I was... 20... You should probably explain what a blag is at this stage. Yeah, well, they, the manufacturer wouldn't call it a blag, of course. What would they call it? I think a gift. Yes. <laughs> yes, possibly. Something to help you understand their product a little better. Yeah, so... Sometime... Which you can take home with you and consider in your own time. Exactly, and, yeah, and enjoy at your leisure. Um, so I often... It really doesn't happen now. If you know, you might get uh, a model of the car that you've gone on the launch of, which, if it's a special car, that's worth keeping. Um, but it used to be the case that it was every launch that you went on, you'd walk into your hotel room or on the charter plane, you'd be handed something, and, and it was a gift, and it was something to keep, often something quite valuable. Um, I think the the most sort of remarkable one I ever received was an iPod Touch when they were brand new back in 08 or something. Honda um, Accord launch. Honda Accord launch. Yes. Exactly Not that right. I still have that touch. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I, I got rid of mine at some point. Uh, and I, I, I don't really want to confess this, but I got rid of it in returns for some money. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, so here's a question. I know the answer to this question, but I genuinely think people will be interested. Do you, A... Um, did you ever feel in any way awkward or embarrassed about taking these things? And do you think um, it ever affected um, anything that you read about the car that you were there to test? It's no to both. Um, it, it is no to both, but I completely understand why people feel that accepting these gifts compromises your, you know, your independence and your your ability to critically assess this car the way that you should do. And that's why... It, it doesn't tend to happen anymore, and frankly, I, I couldn't care less for that reason. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I mean, you, I mean, back in the day, I mean, you know, this is actually before my time. But some of the stories you used to hear, because even when I got into it, it was it wasn't exactly dime, but the size of the gifts were getting uh, a little smaller. I mean, there's one I can remember again only by the stories that I heard that there were a bunch of journos who went off on one of these um, junkets, and they came back and they discovered that someone had not only delivered a brand new uh, fridge freezer to their house, but stocked it as well, um, <laughs> which, is, which, which is fairly astonishing. Um, but yes, as you say, it's, it, it's almost um, uh, entirely disappeared now, and, and I think probably and definitely um, for the best. Yeah, quite agree. Okay, well, let's get back to um, how road testing has changed over the years. I mean, do you think like, cars clearly are very different now to, compared to 30 years ago? Has that changed the process? Uh, no, I think what's changed the process more than anything else is the equipment that we use to, um, to, measure, to get the data. I mean, I just missed, thank God, the era of the fifth wheel. The uh, fifth you wheel. May, <laughs> you, you, you may have seen photographs of these bicycle wheels bouncing up and down behind cars, which you know, my predecessors used to have to strap to the side of cars, and they were... You know, infernally uh, unreliable, um, difficult things. I, I, when I uh, joined, we had a thing called a Datron Korovit, which was made by lights. And it was basically a sensor and a light, which you stuck to the side of the car. Um, and it shone a light on the road um, and the sensor picked up data. Um, it was a big, heavy box, um, which you really kind of needed someone next to you to hang on to because if anything ever went wrong that was an awful lot of metal which would start flying around the cabin uh, and even that was um, you know, a very very flawed bit of equipment it was flawed because if it was wet um, it couldn't cope with the reflections off the tarmac um, <laughs> it was flawed because it it did all sorts of things to the aerodynamics of the car which means you couldn't do a maximum speed run um, it was flawed because it had to be a certain distance off the ground um, and if you were if you strapped it to the back of a car like a TVR, which had very soft rear suspension to get maximum traction, as you went off the line, the car sank down. Um, the sensor got closer to the ground, um, and it was uh, you know you, you you get insane readings. It was flawed because it would come off. It was flawed because it required a flat surface. Um, yeah, it was um, it, it, it it was a horrible piece of equipment. Um, but obviously these days, um, you know, this is, you know, I don't go figuring cars um, these days, um, but, you know, the, you, you, you would probably be able to explain much better the sort of V-Box equipment that um, people use today. Yeah, V-Box, so it's GPS-based. It's a little 
device that you stick in the windscreen um, and often it'll have an aerial that you attach by a magnet to to the roof of the car um, and it measures it by GPS and something they can be a little bit glitchy but <clears throat> when they're working properly that they just make the task so so much more straightforward um, uh, can you can you see sitting in the car um, I mean for instance let's say you're recording I don't know not 100 times can you see exactly there and then what you know or do you have to then download it to a computer and only then get to see what the car's been doing you can see it there and then and um, mo- more recently you can see it on your phone um, yeah it, it there, there are apps I think that will do it but to get the best readings you need the actual GPS unit um, but that can attach to your phone so you can see in real time you know you'll you'll be aim- you'll have a say not to 60 figure in mind and you'll know as soon as it flashes up, if you're aiming for something beginning with a three, as soon as it flashes up with a four, you'll just bail out of that run, yeah, um, and then go again. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have. We had to. <laughs> we had to do the run and then hit whatever it was you hit, and it would then literally just print out um, onto <laughs> tape um, the run, and that was the only. That was the only way that you'd know. Um, you know whether you'd had a decent a, a decent crack at it or not. That's hilarious. So, I, okay. So you suggested, Andrew, that the process of testing cars hasn't changed that much as the cars have developed. But surely the process of getting objective straight line and lap time data has changed, given that cars have perhaps become more reliable, a bit tougher. Uh, yeah, faster. I mean, I mean, I mean that um, that side of things um, has changed. I mean, enormously. Um, I, I think again, you know, I don't road test these cars. You know, I go out and I drive cars and I assess cars. But my days of spending, you know, two three days a week at Millbrook, just pounding around the, you know, the mile, up and down the mile straight and around the speed bowl are, 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 are many years behind me. But yes, I mean, you know, I I don't hear stories of cars going pop um, in the way that they that they used to. I mean, I was when I was road tested a auto car, we lost so many man hours trying to recover stranded road testers because whatever they were in it, they, they, they'd been in had gone bang somewhere that I finally I mandated that no one could go to a test track um, without somebody else with them um, I mean we always tested effectively two up um, but often they're just you know it was not practical to have two people there so you'd kind of you'd say so we had ballast bottles that we put 75 kilos um, of in the car so that it would um, make up for the with the weight of the absent um passenger but yeah but in the end um you know we were just i mean Saabs in particular i mean they were just i mean i think that most of the times i went to a test track with a Saab it broke um <laughs> there were Saab 900s which broke their gearboxes i think there were 9000s which if you did a a standing start the the engine would move so much the distributor would come up and thump the underside of the bonnet and that was that um i had a I had a, you won't remember this, but there was a type of, um, there was a Jaguar tuner called Chasseur. And they came up with a twin turbocharged XJ6, um, which I was, um, I was driving down the mile straight at 140 miles an hour or so when a sparrow came through the grill. Um, and on its way from the grill to the, to the bulkhead took out so much wiring and piping that it completely immobilized the car. I guess that sort of thing could still happen today, but um, but mainly it was it was transmissions, it was half shafts, um, it was gearboxes, uh, engines occasionally, um, but yeah, things just were nothing like as robust. And also, you know, a, you know, all, almost all the cars we were figuring at the time were manual, um, and so you had to, you know, there, there were no there was no traction control, there was no launch control. You just had to, you know, rev them up and side set the clutch and hope that it all, you know, held together. Talk me through the process of extracting straight line acceleration data from uh, a four wheel drive manual car 15, 20, 25 years ago. I mean, it was, I mean, that was, that was, that was, that was kind of, you know, that's what you really didn't want. Um, and, <laughs> unless it was wet, because, you know, a four wheel drive car, you know, back then, they wouldn't have anything like as much power as. You know, you, you wouldn't have been. The point is, you wouldn't have been able to light up all four wheels, mm. um, and so there was effectively no limit to the amount of traction you could have, which basically meant you had to rev it to the red line, um, because you know you you wanted to get the car off the line as fast as you possibly could, and that's what and that's the way the the numbers were extracted, and you did that, uh, and you held your breath because, I mean, the clutch often would just you know incinerate itself. Um, 
you know, the wheel spin was much, much kinder to the car. Um, the moment the wheel started spinning, it started spinning, then nothing else within the drive line would, and your clutch wouldn't, you know, burn itself out. So um, it was just a question of getting off the line as best you could. Um, if it was a turbocharged car, that made life even more difficult because, you know, you had to make sure that somehow um, you stayed, with, you know, you kept the turbo um, spinning properly, and then you'd, you'd just be up through the gears changing gears i mean i mean people used to think that the way to change gears was just just to you know yank the lever as hard as you possibly <laughs> could but you know each gearbox you know you had to learn each gearbox of each car um and you know there were some which would tolerate that and there are others which actually would give you a faster shift if you were a bit gentler with it because you know because they wouldn't balk um you know some cars back then didn't even have rev limiters so if you missed a gear and just landed back on the gas you could just blow the engine up um yeah so it was it was a fairly fraught process and and i don't think any of us liked figuring um cars like that yeah and it's amazing how that compares to nowadays so for instance you might be figuring a 911 turbo pdk gearbox launch control um it couldn't be more straightforward to activate the launch control uh dial up um well, you just flatten the accelerator and the system will choose the revs itself. And then you just lift your left foot off the brake pedal and the thing will rocket away from the line incredibly fast. And it'll it'll do 2.8 to 62 or whatever it is, time and time and time again. You'll do it once and then you'll try it again just to see if it decides it wants to go any faster. And then that's it. Yeah. You see, we had to do... And I think that's another, it's a very good point. I think that's another reason that cars broke. Um, because you know it because it was a difficult process um you know and often much more difficult with some cars than others you know sometimes you had to have go after go after go at it um and so you know as you say with launch control you go one up one down so you've corrected for gradient and wind mm. and then you go home um, yeah. and there's actually precisely zero skill required um whereas back then um you know you always had in your mind an idea of what you thought it should do because you had your manufacturer claims maybe another magazine had done it and they got a certain time out of it so you kind of knew what you were aiming for and if it wasn't doing it you kind of you, I mean, quite often you just conclude that you run out of talent um but you felt the need to keep on chipping away at it um and you know the many's the time when cars broke on me when i just said to myself i'll just do one more Mm. <laughs> and then it's on that last run that you know it just goes come on don't be silly mm. um and um yeah packs up on you so it's difficult really isn't it uh, uh, particularly with um slightly more complicated cars that take a bit of skill to extract a time from there's th- there is all wrapped up in that a degree of pride which probably muddies the water doesn't it a little bit you want to go back with a fast time you don't want to go back and say oh it wasn't that quick no no and absolutely you know there were you know, there were road tests. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't the, I probably wasn't, no, I wasn't the quickest, I don't think. Um, I mean, I would always be within, you know, a tenth or so. But you build up a picture of your colleagues and there'd be certain people who, you know, would go up to the test track and they'd come back and, or, or, or worst of all, they'd be there with you and you'd each try, you'd swap positions and they'd go a tenth quicker than you. And that was never much fun. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and you just sort of build up a picture. And, you know, I certainly ended up just trying to send people who I knew would be able to get the job done and come back with the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, that's the most important thing, really, isn't it? And hopefully without breaking a car. Um, Okay, now this is a sort of two-part question that I'm going to put to you now, Andrew. Um, Presumably, to to be a road tester, particularly when we're talking about the 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 test track side of it, um, you need to be an enormously skillful driver. We all are clearly very very talented, and we could have had F1 careers if only lavishly (laughs) endowed with talent. (laughs) So there we go. How, How much? How much? skill um how much ability does it really take to be a road tester yeah um as opposed to being distinct um it's a strange skill because it's not just the driving i think that's the thing um you do have to be able to drive well you do have to i mean even today you have to understand what a car wants um how to drive it how to get the most from it um it, it is i mean i would say this wouldn't i but it were it, it, it was harder back in my day um just because things were so much more analog than they are now and um and the car just didn't do things for you the way that they do today but even so you still have to be able to you have to be safe you know we are i mean certainly more so now than when i first started doing it you know there are times when you are traveling at proper velocities um and sometimes you're not in a straight line particularly if you're maxing stuff uh the test tracks 
that we use, Myra and Millbrook, um, you know, they're pretty old facilities. Um, you know, they don't have, um, you know, acres and acres and acres of runoff area. Um, and you need to be professional about it. You need to make sure that your tyres are in good condition. You need to make sure that the conditions are right. So, you know, you've got to have a fairly thorough approach. Um, but then, you know, the other, I would say, more difficult um, skill of the road tester, uh, which is, I think, as hard now as it ever was, is being able to actually understand what the car is saying, being able to just do that assessment, being able to work out where, you know, amongst its competitors it stands. Is it good or bad at this, that or the other? And I think that that is, um, yeah, I think that is probably, no, that is definitely the more difficult than the driving part of it. There are lots and lots of people who could drive um, cars to the standard required to, you know, to conduct a perfectly passable road test. I think the number of people who could, understand and interpret and communicate um what those cars are saying to them is is perhaps somewhat smaller yeah agreed that is um that is the better part of it really um i think from a a driving skill point of view the key thing that i've sort of understood and learned over the years partly from my own experience but also from observing people who are more experienced than me also less experienced than me is that it's what you need in, in terms of your in terms of ability at the wheel, it's it's a level that can be achieved on the job just by being diligent, working hard, listening to advice, um, observing the more experienced people around you. I don't think it's a level of skill that needs to be God-given that could otherwise have taken you into a motorsport career. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, from a driving point of view, absolutely. But you do have to be you know, professional about it. I mean, if you think about, you know, you don't think about it because um, you do it, I was about to say every day, you don't do it at all at the moment, but when life is normal, you do it every day or certainly every week. You get, but if you think about it, you get flown to somewhere you may never have been before, um, put on roads that you will never have driven on before and which have no relevance to the roads that the people who read what you write um, will have. Uh, you're given a car that you've never sat in before um, and then you have never enough time. You may sometimes have, you know, as little as, I don't know, an hour and a half actually driving that car because we have to share these the cars with other journalists usually. Uh, during the course of that, you may well have to get an entire photo shoot done. And at the end of that, you are expected to come up with a, with a reliable um, and, you know, often forthright verdict on that car. And, you know, I've never thought that was an easy thing to do. Um, when I first started doing it, uh, I, I was completely at sea. Um, I didn't... You know, and I would just kind of hope that I was got that, that I got it right. I didn't really understand at the time that, you know, there are that, that so much of it is not a question of right or wrong, but you know, opinions that you can back up. But I do think it's difficult. Um, but no, you don't need to be uh, Lewis to do it. Um, but you know, you do need to have done your research, particularly understanding where the car sits in its class before you get in it so you've looked up its rivals and you've done sort of basic specifications and so you you make life as easy for yourself as possible and you know as much as you possibly can before you've sat in the car um to me that is an absolute you can't just you know just get into something blind go and drive it and um and expect your reliable your, your verdicts to be reliable and, and and sensible yeah well you've you've preempted my next question there because you are absolutely right to say that the the, the task the job of assessing a car road testing a car begins long before you actually sit in it because you have to make sure you're very very familiar with the technical specification with the optional extras particularly this day and age where there are very often optional extras that will fundamentally change the way the car drives you need to know if the car you're driving has 100 percent. you look at cars like mercedes a-class ford focus volkswagen golf you know what their manufacturers aren't terribly good at telling you is that it's only the top spec cars for instance that have independent rear suspension and you know if you drive two hatchbacks identical apart from the fact that one has a proper multi-link rear end and the other has just got a beam axle the differences, and in these particular cases, are you know absolutely night and day. And surprise, surprise, you go to the launch, and which are the cars that they put you in? <laughs> it's always the cars, you know. The, and I can remember on the A-class launch, the current A-class launch, you know, whenever it was a couple of years ago, going um, to the launch of that, and um, and you know, Mercedes-Benz hadn't done a beam axle before. It was the first time they'd ever done that kind of suspension. And just saying to the engineers, well, you know, where are they? What you know, this is such an important development. Um, for this car and for your company and yet what what are we meant to do we're meant to take your word that it's just going to be just as good or fine or whatever and 
Yeah, um, so you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the specification of the car that you're in. You know, so many cars, again, you know, air springs. You know, if a car has an air spring as an option, you know, the chances of it being on a press car that you're going to drive, 10 out of 10. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's absolutely right. Uh, okay, so well, let's let's move it on a little bit. So you've done your research, you've worked out exactly what what the car you're driving is, which which bits of equipment it does have, what it doesn't have. Um, do you have a process that you tend to run through when you've sat in a car for a first time, or do you just drive and listen to what it's telling you? It depends on the environment. If, for instance, a car comes to my house um, and I've got it for a couple of days and I can go out on roads that I know, that is one process um, which I can control completely. Um, if, on the other hand, um, we're flown somewhere, I have to share a car, I have to do a photo shoot, time is limited, I don't know the roads, that is another process. Um, in both cases, obviously, you do your research uh, in advance. Um, <clears throat> and then, yeah, when, it's on my, when I'm on my own, um, you either have a dictaphone with you <clears throat> or a notebook and you sit down because thoughts so often, particularly when you get to my immense age, come into your head um, and leave it again almost immediately. Um, so, um, you know, so it's, it's important that, you know, if you do have an idea or you suddenly think, oh, hang on, this car's behaving in this particular way on that particular surface, that, um, that you remember that. Um, but yeah, so, so, so the answer to your question is there's the full range from, you know, fully comprehensive um approach you know with written notes um done over you know a, a period of time best measurable in days rather than hours um to just get in the car drive it um and uh, and and hope that your experience is sufficient for you to be able to do a decent job at the end of the day mm, experience that is absolutely the right word isn't it i i remember thinking that when you've been doing this job for five years you're starting to get somewhere from an experience point of view yeah and and it just depends how you're doing i mean if you are you know, I, I autocar everything um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of the, can I call them skills that I've been able to develop? I guess so. <laughs> um, being on a weekly car magazine where you are testing cars all the time, um, you know, you're going to learn four times faster than where you're on a monthly. Um, you know, you're going to drive four times as many cars. Um, you know, autocar, you know, still today publishes easily the most comprehensive road test. And if you're up at the test track, um, you, know, you, you know, quite often in, in any given week, I would spend more time on a test track than I would in the office or on a road. You'd just be out there all the time. And, and that ex- with that level of experience, because you're, you know, you drive, you drive oh, 50, 60,000 miles a year easily. You drive 120 to 140 different cars every year easily. Um, and if you're doing that, you learn fast, particularly if you're, you know, if you're young and hungry as, as I was at the time. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think actually the weeklies are the best sort of training ground for for young road testers. Um, Andrew, we'll we'll sort of break down road testing into its constituent parts in a moment, but <clears throat> I just want to touch on one other thing. Um, I remember a few years ago, uh, we, you and I were both going on a car launch. I think it was a Mercedes AMG GTC launch. Uh, I think it was in, in Arizona in the US. And you emailed me beforehand saying, "Do you want to share a car?" On, oh yes on a mutual no scare basis yes can you tell can you tell me and the drive nation listeners why you had to add that last bit um because actually um the most important thing about any car launch is not the car that you're driving uh it's not the story that you will write it's that you emerge from it in the same number of pieces at which you went into it um you know, I am and always have been a terrible passenger, but there are, you know, there are good reasons um, why you want to know well in advance who you're going to be sharing a car with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I have I have a friend, um, a man called Gordon Cruikshank, deputy editor of Motorsport magazine, who 30 years ago um, was on a launch in the passenger seat of a car with the wrong person driving it. Um, there was a terrible, terrible accident. Uh, the driver emerged unscathed. Uh, and Gordon, you know, will spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair as a result of that. And, you know, we sort of laugh and joke about it, but there is a serious side. There yeah. have been some um, enormous and, you know, and tragic occurrences on car launches. And, you know, I just, you know, there, there is a lot of testosterone around because sadly it is still a male dominated industry. Um, you know, sometimes you get in a car with a bloke who you don't know very well. 
um, and it's clear to you from the off that uh, maybe because they know who you are, maybe because they know you've been doing it for a bit, um, that they've they've decided they want to show you how good they are. Um, and you know, to me, that's not relevant and that's not appropriate. Um, and because I'm so tediously British and reserved about the whole thing, I find it very difficult. I mean, I have done it, but I find it very difficult to say, uh, mate, you're, you're being a bit of a twat. Would you mind just slowing down? Um, and, and so what I tend to do these days is, you know, is find out, you know, first thing I'll do is I get invited on launch. I'll ring up the manufacturer and say, who else is going? I will then identify someone like yourself, um, you know, who's not only a mate, but someone who's um, going to drive sensibly. Uh, and then, you know, if you do feel the need um, and the road is right and the condition is right to drive you know, as fast as you're you feel safe and comfortable but probably faster than your passenger would ever feel safe and comfortable what do you do it's very easy you just stop at the side of the road say mate i'm going to be gone for 20 minutes um i'm going to drive up and down this road and then i'll come back and i'll stand by the side of the road and then you can do it and then you can get the job that you you need done nobody gets scared um and if anybody gets hurt it'll just be the bloody idiot behind the wheel yeah absolutely right and i think the, the what i find myself saying to younger road testers just starting out is do not concern yourself with trying to come away from a launch with a reputation for being a hot shoe. The most important thing is that you earn yourself a reputation for being a safe pair of hands, someone who can be trusted. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That is 100% correct. However, I would add, what I, I'm not going to contradict you, but you know, you, ha- you, you from your reputation point of view, you have to be able to do the job, and particularly when um, we end up on racetracks um, where you are usually on your own. You know, it's not imp- it's, it's it's not important that you you know that you prove that you can do two hundred yard skids. But um, okay, one example I won't name names, but um, I was. Um, I will name one name, Jethro Bovingdon, because he happened to be in the car with me and he was as frustrated about this situation as I was. But Jethro and I, we were sharing a car at a test track in Germany and it was one of those ones where you had to follow an instructor around a track and because these were Porsches, the instructors, as you know, on Porsche launches drive like the wind and you end up going faster than you probably would have done um, if you'd been on your own. Um, but there was one bloke in our Ducks and Drakes um, convoy who was so slow that he couldn't keep up with the instructor on the slowing down lap. I remember. Because you're not allowed to overtake, uh, you have to queue up behind this. And so you're sitting there trying to get your laps in or whatever. And and you've got someone who, and, you know, and this person would have gone off and would have presumably told um, his readers, um, you know, how, uh, you know, this car handled on the limit. And, you know, clearly having absolutely no idea of how to drive a car in that way. And it is a component of the job. People do want to know how cars um, behave when driven up to and over the limit. You do have to, in very controlled circumstances, be able to do that. Um, and if you can't, if you want a job as a road tester, um, then you've either got to learn fast or probably find another way of earning a living. Yeah, so it's safe pair of hands, but it. Uh, the truth of it is, particularly if you're driving a very fast car, as we all find ourselves doing these days in this line of work and on circuit as well, you do need to be able to drive it pretty close to its limit in order to have a have a say on what that car's actually like at that point. Um, Andrew, let, let's sort of break it down a little bit. It, is it fair to say that assessing a car is sort of three, four fifths ride and handling? It is in terms of what is difficult about assessing a car. Because, you know, you and I and anybody else in the world can sit in the back of a car um, and work out whether it's got decent headroom or not. You, you know, that's, that's not difficult. Um, if you sit and you think um, about the way a car's interior is laid out, um, you can work out for yourself whether that's a good job has been done of that. It's when things are, there's nothing more subjective than ride and handling yeah um and there's no there's no area of the whole road testing business that is more difficult than that and so although it may not make up four-fifths of your assessment in terms of the amount of time you spend thinking about it absolutely that takes up at least four-fifths of your of your mental space Mm. and what how how long is a piece of string what do we mean by ride and handling should we see if we can break that down a little bit more and explain it no after you mate it's no it's it's such a it's such a it's an enormous subject i mean i've I've literally you know i've written entire stories on the subject of steering feel alone yeah um you know handling um is it's it's a it's a subject that is so enormous 
that everything from its on-limit oversteer understeer balance to the you know the squidginess of the material they use to line the steering wheel they you know are, are factors it's, these are but i suppose ultimate handling is to me if you boil it down and boil it down and boil it down it is a car's ability to execute the instructions of its driver yeah okay you'd be amazed at how many cars don't actually go where you think you've pointed them um, and you only have to go to a roundabout and drive around. You don't have to be on the limit or anywhere near it. Just drive around a roundabout with a with a constant steering input and see whether it's, you know, 360 degrees later, it's got back to where you started. Um, and so that is handling at its most basic essential form. Um, but then beyond that, obviously, it goes into all sorts of, of, of other areas. And ride is you know is an even more well, even more at least as subjective subject area uh, and people get tripped up by it all the time because they either mistake or fail to understand the differences between primary ride and secondary ride and your primary ride is basically a car's ability to maintain its ride height so you know a car with poor primary ride would go it would feel light over crests and it would wallow around in dips um and it would fall over in corners and that sort of thing secondary ride is is actually easier because it's lumps and bumps it's just a car's ability to isolate you know sort of everyday imperfections you get in a road surface but the problem is is that quite often those two objectives of primary and secondary ride have been um you know you know you, you can you can tie a car down at springs really hard and get a fantastic primary ride but then your secondary ride is going to go um, out the window. Likewise, you can make a car all lovely and soft and, you know, early Jaguar XJ-like. Um, and you can get the most beautiful secondary ride. Um, but its primary ride will, you know, will be affected. So it's the job is judging not only how well it's been done, but how well it has been done for the kind of car that it is. So, you know, if you're testing an S-Class Mercedes, you're going to have rather different um, ways of measuring how well it's done that job than you would if you were testing, I don't know, GT2 RS 911. Yeah, exactly right. And it also, a car will feel very different on one surface compared to another and on a motorway compared to a B road. Um, Yeah. And you can, we, we can... We know that it's an, an incredibly complicated and quite nebulous thing, ride and handling, because for decades, very scores of very, very clever engineers have been beavering away at it, um, and even now, get it wrong. Oh, absolutely, and you know, and you know, the development process of even you know a small volume car from a low volume manufacturer, you know, the, the chassis engineers will go through. I mean, the permutations, if you think about the springs, the dampers, the bars, the bushes, um, you know, geo, yeah, the geometry. And if you think of the number of combinations of all those things, and of course, they can never, you know, change more than one thing at once, because then they won't know which particular change has made the, you know, that's why these cars take literally years to develop and the tires as well, Mm. you know, um, you know, working with tire manufacturers to come up with exact constructions and exact compounds that, well, if you, it is the most, in, and, 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 you know, I feel sorry for them because, you know, what happens is they spend years and years and years doing their absolute best. And then idiots like you and me get in a car <laughs> on roads we don't know um, and head off, um, you know, and, and then, you know, an hour and a half later, we either say fantastic or we write them off. And, you know, they must tear their hair out and they must want to come up to you and, you know, shake us by the lapels and go, don't you understand how hard we worked on this and the pressures we're under and the constraints we had to work within. And, you know, and we just, you know, we have sadly all the response, all the power and none of the responsibility. Yeah, it's true. But that does highlight why this job, oh, this sounds self-important, why, why it's a necessary role, why we do need people independently driving these cars and saying, oh, I'm not sure that's any good. Um, but I completely understand. I mean, and very often uh, these engineers will be constrained either by time or by budget or by access to components. It might be that the the accountants will only pay for a very cheap damper, for instance, and the engineers just have to work with it. Yeah, and we don't know that, and no. they won't tell us that. Um, and you know, and, and they you know, it must be so frustrating um, for them. But you know, at the end of the day, um, 
and without wishing to sound like a, a proper journalist or anything, you know, we have to report as we find. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and if they come to us and they go, oh, well, you know, if you, you know, because quite often, again, you know, poor engineers, they can get stuffed by their own manufacturers because cars come to a launch and they're on, you know, they're on the biggest wheels with the, with the smallest side wheels possible because some, mar- some marketing department bod has decided that's what they're going to look best in the photographs. Uh, or they go to some part of the world which is completely inappropriate to putting that car through its paces because, again, it'll look good in the photograph or because the chief executive wants to stay in this particular hotel. Um, and, you know, and all that work stands or falls on, you know, on, on, on the environment in which the car is presented. Mm. Um, yeah, who'd be a car engineer? <laughs> Environment in which the car is presented. That's a very good point because that brings us on to the next part of this podcast. Um, so I remember driving when the AMG, the Mercedes AMG GT was new. What was that? 2014, maybe 15. Um, and they launched the car in California. And I remember collecting a car from San Francisco and driving it to meet an Evo magazine colleague. It was Jeffo, actually. Um, who had a 911 Carrera from the launch, which was in LA. So we met halfway. Can, 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 I, can I just, can I just uh, ask how many people listening to this are feeling sorry for you right now? <laughs> it was a little bit rainy. Does that help? <laughs> Possibly not. You poor lamb. Keep going, sorry. We, and it just so happened that kind of equidistant, where there were some good roads, um, took us to the junction where James Dean died, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is an aside. But... Anyway, I remember driving this AMG GT um, and being stunned by how capable it felt. Um, and Jethro felt exactly the same way. And he he was doing the twin test between the AMG GTS and the 911 Carrera uh, Carrera GTS, um, which was the car being launched in LA. Um, and Jethro gave the nod to the AMG. And then a few months later, we had the car in the UK, um, Mercedes took a car up to the Scottish borders for us and we had all of its rivals. We had uh, 911 Turbo, a Nissan GTR. Um, we had uh, a, a, an Aston N430, a V8 Vantage N430. There's one other car, maybe an i8. So we had its rivals there. Um, and we, again, we were all blown away by this AMG GT and we thought it was a wonderful thing and it won the group test. Um, a few months later on, we had that car at Car of the Year, so towards the end of the year, with all of the best cars um, of of the previous 12 months or so. And the thing was a pig. This car that we'd really been bloody impressed by on two occasions beforehand. We were driving it again in Scotland, but somewhere else a bit further north. And it, it just felt like a completely different car. And I, I remember being utterly sort of thrown by that really confused just wondering what the hell's going on is it is it the context uh, you know among all these other perhaps more focused performance cars was it the roads we're driving it on and i just i i questioned everything that i had written and said about the amg gt up until that point so andrew leads me on to the question have you have you ever felt like you've got a verdict wrong or felt like you've had to change your opinion given further exposure to a car yeah i mean similar sort of thing um i i uh, yeah i mean i i we've we've all got i mean i wouldn't say i've got a verdict wrong not because i i I pretend for a moment to be brilliant or all seeing or or or, or infallible in any way but because a verdict is an opinion um yeah and you know but have i ever felt i wish i hadn't written that opinion and therefore i suppose you know that's a wrong but you know as, as as you can call it i guess yeah, so a very similar sort of thing. Um, one of the best launches I went on was the um, Aston Martin DB9 launch in, it would have been 2003, I'm guessing. Um, south of France, um, <clears throat> everything was just the way it should have been. So um, we got to the launch hotel very quickly. Um, the launch hotel was literally on um, the Col de Vence. Um, so, you know, you literally just get out of your... Um, you drive out the gates of the hotel, turn left, and you're on an amazing road. So none of this fiddling through, you know, city streets or big long motorway sections. You could be, be out there doing your job, you know, from the get-go. Um, and we just, I think, five days earlier, I'd been in Maranello driving the 612 Scaglietti. I mean, it's staggering that two front-engine 2 Plus 2 V12 coupes from, you know, 
blue bloods like those two could be launched within, um, you know, literally a few days of each other. But in fact, I think the original plan, I'm going slightly off piece here, but anyway, I think the original plan was that they'd be on the same day until one manufacturer or other realised that they'd only have half the journalists they'd, they'd intended on if they did that. So they literally moved the launch. Um, I think Ferrari shifted to get the UK journalists in. Anyway, um, the DB9 was fantastic. And I can remember sharing with Gavin Green. Uh, most of you will know Gavin, um, fabulous journalist, um, long-time editor of, um, of Car Magazine, old mate of mine, um, you know, very uh, accomplished racing driver. And we just sat there with our smiles getting broader and broader and broader because, you know, we suddenly thought that, you know, Aston Martin, you know, its future had been secured with the db7 but here was the db9 you know and to me it was just a way better car than the ferrari um for an awful lot less money um and that was fab and then i drove it in the uk and it was just a different thing now you know there were, i wasn't the only person to think this i wasn't the only person to drive a db9 in the uk and come to a very different conclusion to um the one that they had in france um there were conspiracy theories about um aston martin had very trick dampers on the cars that they used for the launch you know i know that manufacturers have played those sorts of games before i'm not for a moment suggesting aston martin did then all i'm all i'm saying is that people said that was the case i wasn't one of them but the car was different it just didn't feel as nice um and you know that could have been and it happens literally the difference between um, smooth French roads and uh, our legendarily rutted um, road network. I don't know. But yeah, um, I wish I hadn't been quite so effusive about the DB9 then. But in the circumstances in which I found it, you know, to go back to something I said a few minutes ago, I reported I reported as I found. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's all you can really do ultimately, isn't it? Um, okay, well, uh, we need to start winding this down in a moment. Um, and we'll do that by talking very briefly about the future of road testing. Um, to anyone who's tuned into this, sort of hoping for some advice about getting into road testing or car journalism, um, I think we'll address that later in a different episode when we actually definitely. talk about car journalism more broadly. Um, yeah, we, we will. Sorry, sorry we, we will definitely do that because... Um, uh, I did um, one of uh, the Collecting Cars prod- podcasts with um, with Chris Harris, and we talked a bit about this. Um, and the number of you know young uh, enthusiasts who then got in touch with me uh, because I'd said on this podcast um, that you know I- I'd be keen to help people a bit. Um, and of course, I then got flooded with requests. But it does seem to be something that people are very interested in, and it's not a straightforward subject. Um, so not straightforward indeed that it really does need a podcast by itself and not something we can tack on the back of this one now okay so we'll address that later on um so but before we finish up andrew can you we've got two minutes or so to to discuss the future of road testing we're gonna have to keep it brief um what what are your thoughts i mean that does it become less relevant or does it actually become more relevant as cars become more homogenous electrified and so on no i think it becomes more relevant um I think as, you know, there's this term, you know, which, which has been you know, around the industry for as long as I've been in it, that there's no such thing as a bad car anymore. And I just hate it. I just absolutely hate it because any car exists in a class with other competitors and within that class, uh, there will be an order. And if your car is the worst car in that class, it is to me, by definition, a bad car. And we need um people to make those calls it'll get more difficult because yes of course the gap between the best and the worst is narrowing and it has been for a long time um so you know it it may have got an awful lot easier to record a set of performance figures for a car but i actually think the business of road testing of reaching those crucial verdicts um and telling um people where these cars actually sit and 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 the nuances and the distinctions between you know one car and another I think it's become more difficult and I think it'll become more important. I think people always need to know um, what's best, uh, what's worst. And yeah, and I think, you know, your computers will never be able to do that. Um, and you need road testers and, you know, good luck to them because it's a, it's a great life, but um, not one that's about to get any easier, I, I fear. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Let's, let's begin to wrap it up then. Um, so a few of you, uh, dear listeners, you were good enough to send in some questions for us. We haven't asked them explicitly, but I, I did make sure that we had addressed as many as we could throughout the podcast. Although there was one for you, Andrew, just to finish, just to finish things off. Um, You've got, you can choose any one road in the world to assess a car tomorrow. Which one's it going to be? Oh, you know what? I'm going to give you the most 
boring answer um and it is um it's the road it's a well i mean it's actually a few roads but it basically it's my local it's my testing route around here um it's not the road so it basically goes from where i live in the y valley um up to the welsh mountains and back it's a you know the it's a really really good road but it's not the greatest road in the world but the reason i'd nominate it is because i know it inside out and i and and from a purely specifically road testing point of view the fact that i can take that variable out means that i can reach a more reliable verdict on a car uh, on that road than i can on any other so it is actually i think the most important tool for a road tester to be able to have is somewhere they know they can go and drive a car a road which has all the surface and camber changes and good combinations of corners and then you learn it inside out and then you have a sort of a datum point something by which everything else can be judged mm-hmm. um so yeah sorry i wish i could have said something rather more exotic but no it's, it's a road between the y valley and the welsh mountains i completely agree with you uh yeah familiarity is key well there we go that's a good place to leave it so um we'll end it there uh thank you everybody for listening please remember to rate the podcast leave a review subscribe as well wherever you get your podcasts um and thank you for listening and thank you andrew for your time as well thank you dan i look forward to doing it again this time next week yeah we'll speak to you soon goodbye everyone cheers all the best mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market 